Hi everyone, uh, just picking up now in our next session on Nehemiah. I'm going to start um, this, uh, this week's sermon on a slightly different tack from before. I want to read to you um, a dream that a friend of mine uh, had a few years back, just when we were starting the church, um, which she believed was a dream from the Lord. If you see in the Bible, one of the ways the Lord speaks quite frequently in the Bible actually is through dreams. And um, that's not to say that every dream you have is from the Lord, but there's definitely one way that the Lord can speak. And um, it's a dream that was a great encouragement to us um, in the early years of the church. So I'll read it to you now. It says this, the dream was centered around a detached four bedroom house. It was a typical 1970s build with a porch that ran along the front of it with a flat roof veranda, which stuck out across the whole front at first floor level. You were standing on the flat roof with a shovel in your hand and you had a huge grin on your face and were saying, look Catherine, that's my friend's name, I'm building a house for the needy. You took me around to the side of the house and it was clear that whilst the front of the house looked like a typical house in England, from the side it was a large and very different house that you were building. It stretched back very far. It's going to have 18 rooms, you said. Down the side were lots of different shaped windows. The house and windows have been designed by an architect. The most vivid window was a beautiful stained glass window like the ones you would see in an Anglican church, but there were other ones as well, and no two windows were the same. Each one was a different design, and each one had been designed by the architect. A number of things struck me as I woke up. It was clear that an architect was involved in the building. This, I feel, is God's confirmation that Revelation Church is part of his design and plan, and that he is skillfully shaping it. I guess no matter what comes your way, he wants you to hold on to the fact that Revelation is part of his plan and design, that nothing will thwart its success, and that you have heard right. Another part of the dream was that Revelation may look like any other church from the outside, but take a closer look and it will have a very different look and feel about it. Finally, you were very clear in the dream that you, that you were building a house for the needy. At first I wondered if you were about to start a project for the poor. This may be the case, but then I sensed it went beyond that. People can be needy in so many ways and God will be meeting the specific needs of every individual in your church. The different windows represented the different ministries for those needs. How he was designing something specific for each of those needs and it was very beautiful. So I guess the dream was encouraging you that Revelation is designed and is being built by God, that it will be a different type of church and that God will meet the spiritual, emotional and physical needs of all those who join in. What a great dream. This message I've called this week, A House for the Needy, really springing out of that prophetic dream that has been one of the words that has shaped us and our vision as we go forward. And um, just to give you a quick um, Heads up in terms of how this sermon series is working and what we're going for the book of Nehemiah, written around or set around 445 BC. And um, Nehemiah is a Jew, but he's living in Persia and has been so all his life. His, his forefathers were exiled there when the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem. And then, um, but he still carries Jerusalem in his heart. In that season, in that time, Jerusalem represented God's presence, the centre, if you like, of God's purposes. And so he, when some Jews visit Persia, he inquires about Jerusalem, hears the bad news, it's in ruins, it's, uh, the people are in a bad way, and he, his heart is broken, he seeks God, and God puts a dream and a vision in his heart to rebuild the walls of the city. And so he goes back, and really the story is of Nehemiah, and God's will, God's favour within God's hand on him, uh, to help him to accomplish this amazing feat of rebuilding the city walls. Um, and so that, that, and we're excited about that because we don't think that that story is um, simply about that, but that it's a foretelling, it's a, it's a signpost 
pointing towards the Lord Jesus as he builds and rebuilds his glorious um, city, the city bride that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, the church, the community of God, the household of God. So for us, it's, it's so meaningful, um, it's so rich and deep, there's so many amazing lessons for us as we gather together as God's community in this part of London, um, looking to follow Jesus as he, as he builds and rebuilds his people, his house. So I'm going to read Nehemiah now, I'm going to read chapter 5, which is where we're up to in this series. And um, here we go. Now, there was a, arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover... There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it lives. I pray as I speak now you would help me communicate with clarity, communicate with life, and most of all with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen. So, a house for the needy. Well, last week we looked at the difficulties Nehemiah was facing from enemies on the outside, those who weren't part of the community of God, those who weren't part of the city, but were causing immense problems on the outside. And this week we have enemies within if you like problems on the inside the house if you like is not in order and fundamentally what's happening is this is that those uh, Jews in the community that were more affluent 
uh, more powerful, were lending to those who were poorer, but were exacting interest. And what, what, what was happening was a spiral of debt was taking place. That, um, uh, for many, many people that are in debt, the problem lies with this whole idea of interest, where interest just gets higher and higher, and in the end, all people can do is maybe pay off the interest and the debt just remains and it keeps people trapped. And um, that's what is happening here. And God had forbidden that in the, in, the, in, 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 in the Mosaic law. It was forbidden that you should uh, exact interest from your, from your neighbor. And it, it was a desperate time. There was a famine that was going on. And, to some, uh, and, and even some families ended up selling their children into slavery to their fellow Jews. I mean, it's just a terrible thing. And verse 9 is the key. Nehemiah says this. He says, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? You see, there was no fear of God in their heart. And whenever people keep others down, and whenever people do things that kind of subtly or obviously rob other people, or oppress other people, or keep them down in some way, it shows there's no fear of God. There's no awe of the fact that we all together are accountable for our lives to God, and we'll be held to account. And we'll have to give an account. We are all morally responsible uh, beings. And, 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 and we live before him. He searches our hearts. He knows not just what we do, but why we do it. And when we stop fearing God in that healthy sense, when we stop having a right and proper awe of him, what, what follows from that is often unrighteousness. What follows from that is often we begin doing things. Um, we, we join the rat race. We, we just become like everyone, everyone else who really doesn't fear the Lord. And, and it's, it's just about getting one over on other people. It's about... And getting what you can, or it's about um, it's about looking after number one, and it demonstrates no fear of God. And Nehemiah says, "This is what you're doing. It's not good." And this can happen in the church in a number of ways. I guess the most obvious way is that you can lend to other people in the church and then exact interest. You're not to do that. And primarily, not just because the Mosaic law forbids it, because Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic law, but, but fundamentally, more importantly than that, it's because it just does not look like the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is, is, that, is, that, is that God, rather than keeping us down, keeping us in our lower state, came among us in our lower state, completely identified with us, and, and, and not only that, took on the curse and the oppression of our low estate, of our sin-enslaved state, took all of that on himself, bore the burden of that on our behalf, and then through his resurrection and being exalted and ascending back to the Father's right hand, takes us with him. So he comes down to where we are and he lifts us up. That's the gospel. And so if we're looking to embody the gospel in the way that we are with one another, we're to come alongside one another in our difficulties and lift one another up. We're to, that's, that, that is how we demonstrate the gospel, not just in word, but in deed. This is vital, this is vitally important. And so there's, a, there's an implication financially. If someone's in need and you lend to them, then you have a number of options. One option is, is that you don't even ask for anything back. You just decide to give to them. That looks like the gospel. Another option is that you decide that you, that you will... That you do need the money back, and that's fine, but you do so in a merciful way. You let the person have a, there's a pace about the repayment, or, or you know, you just conduct the thing in a godly way. Um, you don't pile more and more pressure on by adding more money into the mix, more interest. You don't do that. That's going to keep them down. That's going to that's going to restrict them from really coming out of their of the tough season. 
that they're in. That, I mean, that's the gospel too. Because it, you, you're helping people learn responsibility, and that's good to pay back. You, you know, you're, they're learning maturity, responsibility, but it's being done in the context of mercy and grace and compassion. The last thing we want is to generate a situation here where we keep one another down. It's important that our own house is in order. This is why we have the 245 fund taken from Acts 245 where it talks about the wonder of the church and how there was no needy among them and there was this sharing kind of community. It's why we have that. We have a special fund. People from the church with surplus money can pay into that fund so that when people in the church hit seasons through, you know, just, just hit a tough season where there's not enough. Um, that they can be helped in that way. That's why we. That's why we do that. We've got to have our own house in order. Um, that's why we do the cap money course, which is the cap money course is not the same as cap. Cap money course is to help keep you out of debt, uh, rather than help you if you're in debt. It's to help you with budgeting and just managing your money well. It's why we help people with CVs, writing a CV, so you know we can help you. You know, get get, get a good job. It's it's why it's why we support people starting business with advice and other things because our, our house is in order it needs to be in order there's no point feeding hungry Camden if people among our very own uh, community of the church are hungry there's no point doing that if you're hungry and you're one of us let us know we won't just give you food we will give you food but we want to help you in such a way as to pull you out of that situation to demonstrate how Jesus has pulled us out of captivity and, and debt and other things it's important to realise that we're not, as the church, just the city within the city, Revelation Church, the Church of Jesus Christ within London, but we are a city for the city. Getting our house in order isn't the end goal, it's vitally important, but the idea is that then that orderly house, that place that is brimming with just gospel, hope, life, power, transformation, shines out to all. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, Verse 16 about, you know, you're like, you're like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. You know, you're the light of the world and, and let your good deeds, let your good deeds be evident. Don't hide them. Let them be evident so that people can see and glorify your Father in heaven. So, wow, people can see and come to know the Lord. I mean, we're, we're to carry in our hearts big dreams for this city that's around us. We're here to serve the city as Jesus served us. We're here to bless the city as Jesus blessed us. We're here to contribute to the city, as Jesus has immeasurably contributed to our lives. And I've just got a, a quote I'm going to read here from the fantastic book, If God Then What, where Andrew Wilson takes a couple of pages to dream about what a city might look like with all of the good and none of the bad. What London might look like um, under God's redemption. He says this, I was wondering what a solution might look like, so I went to London. It was a strange decision. But I figured that imagining the redemption of the whole world was impossibly vast. And I'd never manage it. Somehow, imagining the redemption of London seemed more achievable. So I got up early, took the train to Victoria and got the bus as far as Piccadilly Circus. I've never been one of those people for whom perfection involves nothing man-made. Lots of people these days talk as if a perfect world would have no buildings or vehicles. But I disagree. I mean, I like being in the middle of nowhere as much as the next man. But the world has always seemed slightly incomplete to me without human activity. I've always thought sweeping harbours are more attractive when they have a smattering of yachts in full sail and that beautiful architecture can enhance almost any vista. So when I think about a world redeemed, I think of it having cities and culture as well as mountains and meadows. I think of it having 
Cities just like London with galleries, museums, bohemian enclaves, side streets, markets and theatres. It's just that in my dream world, the evil that currently taints the whole city has been removed. It starts in the human soul. In the redeemed London, everybody knows that they are loved by their creator. This might sound very fluffy and religious, but it's the biggest difference between the redeemed London and the regular one. I don't mean that people believe their creator is real or that they are doing their best to impress him. I mean they know that no matter what happens, the God of the universe delights in them, sings over them, loves them like I love my children, only more so. People who don't know this can give their whole lives to the pursuit of an affirmation that never comes from careers, lovers, children, parents, because we are all wired to get our sense of meaning and security from beyond ourselves. That's why the people going past the window right now are walking so fast. Because they're trying to balance their family, their social life and their work so that their friends, their families or their boss will say, well done, you're a worthwhile and meaningful person. But in the redeemed London, people walk much more slowly because they already know they're worthwhile and meaningful because God says so and he's the only one that matters. This means that people in the redeemed London live without anything to prove, in complete security. And this has all sorts of implications that make it hard to recognise it as London, even though Tower Bridge and Big Ben and St James's Park are still there. For a start, people on the tube make eye contact with one another and smile instead of hiding behind their newspapers because now strangers are not people to be avoided because they're all scary, but people to be celebrated because they're all happy. There are no brooding clumps of youths standing around Elephant and Castle smoking and looking miserable, trying to find their identity and the acceptance of their group because all young people in the redeemed London already know who they are and why they matter, since they know and are known by God. The roads are weird. Taxis don't cut one another up around Parliament Square or Hyde Park Corner. Nobody honks their horn in frustration, but drivers look happy, and you can't hear any sirens. And because there's no insecurity anymore, everybody loves diversity, and you see white people stopping Arab people in the street to ask them about all the beautiful things in their culture, and how to enjoy a really long meal, and how to greet people properly. People's hearts have changed too. It's like everybody's got new desires, new passions, because they are all pursuing their happiness and the joy of God and the joy of others and that changes the way they do everything. Metro doesn't have any negative stories anymore and nobody kills or abuses or cheats on anyone. It's not just that people don't do bad things, it's that they don't even want to. There's no hatred in Tower Hamlets, no greed in Kensington, no jealousy in Primrose Hill or no lust in Soho. Beauty is celebrated but without anyone trying to own it to the exclusion of others. The seedy brothels north of Chinatown stopped operating long ago. Not because someone made a law about it, but because nobody wanted to cheapen something as beautiful as sex by having it with a woman they didn't know in an underground hovel. The billboards in Hackney and Southwark, which used to have obscene graffiti over a plea to gunmen to hand in their weapons, now sell stories about how people who used to use graffiti and guns found forgiveness and acceptance and had their lives changed. It's as if the whole city has lost the ache in its soul, the ache people are trying to soothe with money, sex and power. People are living satisfied, fulfilled lives and it makes the city so beautiful it makes you want to weep. The oddest thing about the redemption of London is the way people work. In the old London people could work to get money as much as they could so they could get more stuff, look and feel more important, go on nicer holidays and live in nicer flats. In the new one people still work but they do it not so much for their own benefit as for the whole community. The city is still there but all the financial whiz kids spend their best years trying to work out how to use money to help the most people. All the advertising agencies up by Good Street use their creativity and communication skills to praise what is honourable and admirable for its own sake. Oxford Street, would you believe, has become a massive open-air market where every product you can find is crafted with care, from the exquisite and artistic clothing to the rich selection of handmade books to the range of fresh breads from the baker who set up where the tacky souvenir vendor used to be. Every square inch of the city has had the good reinforced and the bad removed and it spills over into the art scene, the architecture, the public spaces, even the government. It's a sight to see. 
or an image. And uh, when the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it, it uses even more extravagant language. And we've got to carry that in our heart. We're a hope-filled people. And um, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through this great news of God rescuing us, God doing all that needs to be done to rescue our, our, our lives, to reconcile him to himself, to forgive our sins. We, we, we see that these, this, is where, this is where it's going. The, the resurrection was the beginning. The resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the restoration of the whole of creation. It's a, on a cosmic scale. And we carry this in our hearts, which is why we, do, why we run a cap centre, helping those trapped, crippled by death. It's why we run our food bank, where we look to feed those who are going to bed hungry. It's why we have our prisons, gospel community, and our homeless gospel community, and on it goes. And uh, it's, 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 it's looking to, uh, to bring the aroma of Jesus into those situations. But I really want to focus for a few minutes on, on ways similarly to Nehemiah's situation in chapter 5, ways that within the city, within the community of God, we can, I'm sure... I'm sure unintentionally, but maybe sometimes, who knows, even intentionally, keep one another down. Rather than, rather than bringing one another up, elevating, preferring one another, as the Lord has done with us, keeping one another down. And I've got a few very practical examples of how we can do this and, 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 and why this is so unhelpful. The, the first could be a situation where within the church there's a, there are friendships, friendship dynamics, where there are certain, there are unwritten rules. There are how, the way I would describe it is like friendships where you're you're bound to one another in a in a weird way, where there's there's a kind of there's control or, or codependency in a in a in a strange and suffocating way, where there's certain vows almost that have been made to one another, and it, and, it, and and there's no there's no fresh air in the relationship. It's almost it's a it's it's a strange dynamic that's unhelpful. And unhealthy. It's it's actually a kind of a slavery, yeah, uh, and it, it, often rooted in kind of fear and control. And it's a it's a dark it's a dark thing. You're not liberating one another in that friendship. You're not releasing one another in that friendship. You're binding someone to you in a controlling way. The gospel comes to liberate us. That we are not under the governance of anyone else ultimately but they're really under the governance of Jesus and we don't find ourselves living the kind of life where we tolerate hidden, secret, shameful, dark things in friendships out of loyalty to that person where actually our primary loyalty is to Jesus Christ who is the light of the world it's very important that we don't allow those kind of relationships to develop in our lives they cut they cut across the gospel jesus comes to bring freedom and light and life in the blessing of friendship which is what he himself has created and calls us to be with him secondly as a culture can develop where people are quick to put down or quick to mock or quick to take a swipe whether it's about clothes or tastes personal tastes or expressiveness um, there's one particular person in the church has made a comment, someone artistic, where they, 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 
that they can't even explain it. They say there'd be in other churches and they feel free to bring some expression of certain things during worship and praise. But at Revelation, it, it just they feel strangely tied up, strangely, strangely unable to do that. That's not good. That's really not good. I'll, I'll use an illustration that many of you will probably find humorous and funny, and I really hope you take it the right way and not the wrong way. But I found it interest, interesting and intriguing. You probably noticed if you've been at a wedding with me or somewhere where there's music, I'm normally, I'm normally one of the first up on the dance floor. Um, I just love a groove, and, and that's fine, and, and that's cool. And, uh, you know, the fact that I'm probably 39, so my moves are probably a bit passe. All of those things are fine, so don't take this the wrong way. But I've been surprised... But pretty much every time, every time I've been somewhere where I've been dancing, someone in the church has just felt the need to make some kind of comment. It's just surprised me. I just thought, I'm just, I'm just dancing. I'm just having a dance. Why do, you, why do you feel the need to have to? Why do you feel the need to have to make some kind of comment or say some kind of thing? And it's just a strange culture where people feel they need to do that because it just, it just has the potential to create self-consciousness and. Uh, where everyone's looking over their shoulder, if I do that, what's so-and-so thinking or so-and-so saying? That's horrible. That's horrible because, you know, through the gospel, Jesus comes to bring a whole new culture where we, we actually get set free from this slavery of feeling under one another's scrutiny the whole time. But we're free to be who we really are, who has made us to be, express ourselves in that way without having to draw a load of comments from other people, you've got to watch that. You can keep people down. If you've always, if you're someone who always has to have some comment to say, some opinion, you can keep people down by doing that. Or it could be a scenario where you just feel like, for whatever reason, you're seen in a certain way. People see you in the church in a certain way, but that's it's not really what you are. It's not really who you are. And you may you may not even know how it's happened, but it's almost like become a mold, and it's. It's not actually truly who Jesus has created you to be, but you've just kind of got into that. And, and so really, you're, you're not really living out truly who you are in the church. You're someone else outside from who you are among God's people. That's, that's, that's horrible. I mean, that's hard. That's not what the Lord wants for you. I mean, the whole wonder and beauty of, 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 of the gospel of being recreated brand new in Christ Jesus is that you get to become who you were always really made to be. Not dictated to by simply what others say, but what the Lord speaks over you. He knows who you're made to be and he will bring out who you truly are. You've got to shake that off. And, and so that's something you've got, to, you've got to come out of that. Or it could be that you have past experiences in different churches where you just, you're living really bound by that. You've experienced something negative. Maybe in community or lack of community or through the leadership or who knows what. And actually, you're, you're, you've been fundamentally shaped by that. It's holding you down. Well, thank God for this gospel of forgiveness. You see, through forgiveness comes healing. Through forgiveness comes restoration. As you forgive and let go, those, those people, release them. Whoever hurt you, whoever wronged you, the Lord will bring healing to your heart. If you forgive from the heart, which means letting the pain of it, Come out, not putting a lid on it, letting the pain of it come out, letting the Lord minister to the pain and bring healing. Then you're no longer going to be shaped by that, but shaped by 
shaped by what the church really should be, as spelled out in the scripture, a community of life, of love, of compassion, of holiness, of truthfulness, of grace and mercy. Maybe you've experienced classism or racism in the, in the church. You know, we believe in this gospel of one new man in Christ, that every barrier is broken down through Jesus' act on the cross. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Through genuine union with Jesus and fellowship with one another, there is, a, there is a bringing up out of the ash heap that the Lord does through the gospel. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Look at your life, your relationships, and ask them, are they the same shape as the gospel? <laughs> is everyone getting alongside and, a, and a exalting? Is that what's happening? So important. And then I just want to make reference really to these last few verses where... Nehemiah speaks about how he didn't take advantage of the money that was available to him and how he fed people out of his own pocket. And he just lives in direct contrast to the culture that had developed in the city of Jerusalem. And I want to just say this, look, this is just Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, our leader, had so many rights, but gave them all up. You know, he who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself Nothing. Nehemiah here is a signpost towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who the King of creation, the King of kings, gave all the glory, all the majesty, all the privilege, really. Laid it all aside. Laid aside the privilege and became a servant. Even becoming obedient to death. Death on a cross. And that's why God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He deserves it. This high exalted one has been lower than any of us know. He has experienced shame, humiliation, horror voluntarily that none of us can begin to fathom. We can align ourselves with this Jesus. We can submit to him safely. His plan is to raise us up, to sit with him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Beautiful. I want to end by just appealing to those of you who are on the outside looking in in some way to, to come. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. Come, come, not to me, to Jesus. Come to Jesus and find your citizenship in his city. And I want to speak to you, Revelation Church, and say, love this city. Do not withdraw, retract, keep yourself aloof. Love and bless this great city that he has called us to. We are here for the good of this city. Let's do it with all of our hearts. Amen.